at your mother. She's still staring at me. Well, who wouldn't stare at you? Tony, promise you'll do it. You know, every time I think how lucky I am, I feel like screaming. Tony, please promise you'll invite them. Oh, I feel the scream coming on right now. No, we'll have to face it sooner oh, or yeah, later. Oh, it's starting right now on my toes. Sorry about the tingling sensation. Now, look, we can invite them to up around my knees. My legs are traveling faster and Tony. faster and faster. You're not really going to scream. It's in my stomach right now. It's got me, Alice. Stop it, your now mother. Now it's going up Tony. and up and up and up. It's all no, over no, my body now. Here. No. It's in my throat now. What I can do is fighting to get out. I don't. Oh. I can't hold it any longer. Here it goes. No! What happened? What happened? What happened? Well, a mouse went no. right past there. A mouse in this place? A mouse? What do you mean a mouse? There was a rat that long with hair on it. A rat with hair on yeah, it? Yeah, about six of them. Weren't there six or seven of them? Where? 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 Right under that table. Oh, there they go. G'day everybody and welcome to another episode of Awards Don't Matter, the podcast that takes a look at all the best picture winners and some of the losers too, and asks, do they still matter? My name is Andrew Pierce and I'm joined by my co-host all the way on the other side of the world, Dave, welcome. Thank you, happy to be back. I've just been like re-listening to some of our episodes because they've just been released on, on, because I just like, I like pain. Uh, and I remember now saying that, like, when you're when you have energy, when you're feeling spicy, the good day comes out. So we're up for a good, <laughs> we're up for a good episode on these 11th Academy Awards. Andrew is ready; he's raring to go. So this is going to be exciting. Well, we've got an interesting film to talk about uh, and an interesting discussion. Uh, we are going to be talking about You Can't Take It With You, which is the Best Picture winner for Frank Capra, the 11th Best Picture um, winner. And he won also Best Director, and that's the only two awards this particular film won. Uh, he had won Best Director previously, but this is the first time that his um, film kind of uh, really uh, took over after it happened one night. Uh, so, you know, it was got what these two films were the ones that he won Best Picture with. And I think he'd been nominated a few more times after that. So, you know, he's he's kind of a perennial guy in the 30s. And he's done a pretty good job of uh, establishing himself as one of the cinematic greats. But I hadn't heard of this film prior to really, uh, you know, jumping into the whole best picture thing. Because we hear about It Happened One Night. We hear about It's a Wonderful Life. And we don't hear about You Can't Take It With You. So, Dave, I guess one of the first questions, I guess, is... What was your kind of uh, first impressions of um, approaching this particular film? Because I know that you particularly love the Christmas story. Uh, it ha- it's a wonderful life. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, th- I mean, I think It's a Wonderful Life is one of the 10 best films ever made. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of like it. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty good movie. Um, and I think my love for that movie kind of harmed my experience of watching this. Yes. Because this feels like... Uh, this is mean, but this feels like a dime store version of that. It feels like like that story, but like without without focusing on the great Jimmy Stewart. Like I I feel like he's weirdly very wasted in this movie. Like he like and a lot of it is because like he is not even probably definitely the most known actor in this film. Um, watching it from you know from the future, watching it from 2021, well, it's like that. So. You know, yeah, nobody, Andrew, Andrew, you're you're talking cinephile nonsense. Nobody <laughs> knows that name. 
Nobody. <laughs> Drew Barrymore? Sure. Lionel Barrymore? Not so much. But I bet if you asked, like, regular moviegoers, people who see, like, ten movies a year, they'd still know who Jimmy Stewart is. Or at least if, if you went, like, oh, the guy from It's a Wonderful Life, the guy from Vertigo, uh, the guy from, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, whatever you want to pick. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Or they'd know the voice, at, at the very least, right? Um, and he's just kind of um, like a good-looking prop in this movie. Like, he's just kind of there. And this is very much uh, a story about these two old men, you know, kind of from opposite sides, one very rich. One, I wouldn't say very poor, but, you know, definitely not a rich man either. And he's trying to find... poor, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like, trying to find middle ground. And it's... I, I walked away from this, and I thought, that was nice. And it's a very nice movie, um, but uh, it doesn't have the darkness. It doesn't have the kick that something like It's a Wonderful Life does. Because I think sometimes people think of a well-known, wonderful movie like that, and they think like, oh, it's nice. It's it's a feel-good movie. And it is. But, man, if you watch It's a Wonderful Life uh, kind of going in blind, like there's – it's kind of messed up. Um, and you don't really have that here. This just feels like a four-quadrant crowd-pleaser that does its job really, really well. It's a good-looking movie. It has a very clear message. Uh, but in a year that is this stacked with great nominees, after watching a bunch of these, this does feel—and I what I always do is I'll watch all the other nominees I can first, and then I'll watch this right before our episode. And this, after watching all those, I feel like, her— Really? That's what we're we're picking that one? Like there's so many great options. And this one is just like I mean, I'll probably if I rate it, it'll probably be like one of those like three and a half star movies. Like a pleasant watch. But nothing that like it's not a movie I'd be like, oh my god, a forgotten classic. You must watch. You can't take it with you. I have to keep looking to my right and look at the title so I remember it. Like that's how I'm like, what is this movie called again? And that's usually not a good sign. Yeah, yeah. So I mean the the plot is basically as you're saying that there are two uh, father figures uh one is um a banker uh and anthony p kirby played by edward arnold and he essentially is uh trying to buy up a whole bunch of um housing places and and this 12 block uh, section of uh somewhere in uh new york i believe it is um and his son Tony, played by James Stewart, is currently falling in love with his stenographer, uh, Alice Sycamore, played by Jean Arthur. And her father is, well, she has a father, but she has a grandfather, and they kind of live in this strange little place, and it's a bit like, it's this very quirky place. It's very, um, you know, I guess in some regard, like, I, I look at this film, and it's been a long time since I've seen the Royal Tenenbaums, but I look at this film, and I'm like, Oh, Jeez, Wes Anderson kind of looked at this and went, oh, yeah. that's what I want, but a little bit darker. You know, right. it, it feels And very... somehow more quirky. Like, yeah. <laughs> turn that quirk back through to 11. Because, yeah. you know, it is who it is. Yeah, and I don't mind quirkiness, but on the same hand, this is like, this is a level of annoyance and quirkiness that is just a little bit much. And I get that they're trying to present this freewheeling kind of family. And I like this film. I, I, I gave it four stars on Letterboxd. I thought it was quite a charming film. But the core aspect of it, this particular family, the Sycamore family, which is just this kind of, uh, I don't want to say halfway house, but it's almost like what it is, where the, the grandfather... Yeah, it feels like it. 
Yeah, yeah. Grandpa Martin Vanderhoff, played by Lionel Barrymore, the the man that everybody knows. Um, he uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, essentially allows this place to exist as a place for creative people to exist and do what they want to do. Uh, and the money just kind of appears somewhere and you know they do all manner of strange things like in the basement there's these people testing out fireworks and stuff and i'm like i don't think that's very good for the structural integrity of the house <laughs> like i don't think that's very good you've got a granddaughter who does a lot of dancing you've got a daughter who is like she this only random became... granddaughter just like flitting around from it's room insane. to room like, and I, I never would have put together the Wes Anderson thing, but holy shit. Yes, this is 100% Wes Anderson in the 1930s. Like, why? I was like, what in the world is happening? Yeah. Like, there were so many moments like that in the movie where you just kind of like, and you mentioned like the money just appears. The same thing with these characters. They just kind of appear and you have to just kind of go with it. Like, you just like, I don't, don't think about this too hard. Because you're one, you're gonna hurt your head, and two, it's never gonna make any sense anyway. <laughs> yeah. You might as well just let it go, man. Yeah, and like he, like one of the first things that we see is Grandpa Vanderhoff uh, is essentially going to his this this um the the banker's place to kind of say no, you're not going to buy my house because if you buy it, then everybody loses their properties and all this kind of stuff. He's a linchpin in keeping this community together. And then he meets this other dude, um, Mr. Poppins, um, played by Donald Meek. And he's just like, hey, why don't you leave your job and come and work with me? Because, you know, for some reason, this Mr. Poppins has this invention that he has that he hides at work just on the opportunity that somebody might come up to him and go, hey, tell me about yourself. <laughs> and then he can introduce it, even though... Gosh, I don't know. Again, look, this is one of the problems, as you said, don't think about it. But in the moment, it is quite charming. But now as I'm breaking it all down, it's right. (laughs) Not so great. Not so cute when you start thinking about it later. So here is is a terrible thing to say, but here's the problem for me with doing this podcast. Here's (laughs) here's where everything goes wrong for me is the more classic films you watch, the more you realize that Hollywood is just full of gangsters and thieves. So, you know, this whole plot line about like, well, there's this one house left for us to build this development. I'm like, where have I, where have I seen this? Up. It's the fuck. It's the plot to up. Oh yeah. Pixar movie. Like they just stole that. They just like ripped it. Oh, there's this one house before we can redo the whole neighborhood and own everything. I was like, and, oh man, and, everything sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and with that as well, like just to kind of, put a stab in the the side of Up. Up's a nice film, but not only did they steal the plot from this film, but the score for Up um, is a random side bit, is Michael Giacchino effectively ripped that off from the movie Sex and Lucia. It's insane. Continue on. I just wanted to... So... You know, I spent a lot of time, like, you know, being pretty negative. Here, I'll be positive. I think this movie really becomes something when they stop focusing on the masses of people that live in this house and they have one-on-one scenes between these two patriarchs. Um, That scene where they're in the drunk tank, phenomenal. Perfectly acted. Lionel Barrymore just absolutely destroys that scene. And it's it's very (laughs) – as someone who loves It's a Wonderful Life, as I mentioned, it is very strange for me. 
to see Lionel Barrymore as a very nice man. I don't trust it. Uh, it's very upsetting to me because that voice, like, that's where I go. I go, that, well, that man is evil and should be in a wheelchair, apparently. That is what I think of him. Um, but, man, that scene really works. And it's impressive that it works for a number of reasons. One, it's a very contrived moment. Right. Oh, you know, all these things have to line up for these two to end up in this place. But you again, you go with it. Um, and it's a, it's a cursed scene where they have to, like, say the name of the movie, which is always a little iffy. Sometimes it works really well. Most times it falls really flat because you're like, OK, yeah, this is the you know, this is the the speech. This is the moment that we have to take in. But even knowing that, even knowing the title and knowing what's going on in that sequence and knowing that you're being preached to uh, by the by the writer and director, like Barrymore's performance of that line of telling him, you know, this is why I do what I do, because you can't take it with you. There's no point in that. And again, you know, to link it back to Capra's probably most famous movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it's the same message. I mean, that movie ends you know, no, you know, essentially like no man can be truly poor if he has friends, right? You can't take this money with you. It's about the connections you make. It's about family. So Capra, that is like a recurring theme for Capra, but it, man, that scene really, really works. And so does, uh, so does the scene, uh, where our kind of female lead finally snaps <laughs> at Jimmy Stewart's character is like, fuck this man. I'm not going to have you treat me and my family like garbage. I'm out of here. That seems pretty heartbreaking because you know that, you know, Jimmy Stewart, you know, he's the nice guy here. He's not, you know, an evil conglomerate. Like he's just kind of stuck in a weird position with his family. So you do feel bad for him, but you also understand where she's coming from, especially when you know who raised her and how important family is. And that trumps everything. So that scene really works too. But anytime, and frankly, the majority of the movie is just, stuffed with people and firecrackers and dancing and it's just like i i'm watching it and i feel like my head is spinning because there's just so much going on uh it does really feel like a director that's just like you know what let's just try it we're just gonna do everything just throw it at the screen have a good time why not and despite all that even though it's stuffed full like that those scenes are still enjoyable but they almost seem like they're in a different movie then those small moments and those small moments are what I definitely like related to most and what I wanted more of in you can't take it with you. And there's also a random Raven that just kind of appears and does stuff like the more that you pick apart, this film is, is just kind of a little bit, uh, a little bit crazy. I want to ask something of you because I, I find this film quite interesting in how selective it is with its politics in a way and on a on paper uh these characters the the sycamore family and the the, the, all these people living in this big house effectively feel like very left-leaning people and they feel like very inclusive and celebratory people who support and love each other and want equality for all and yet and I don't expect films from the 1930s to be hyper-progressive or anything like that. But there are two characters, Reba, played by Lillian Yabo, and Donald, played by Eddie Rochester Anderson, who are effectively the help uh, for this house. And it is, it is really hard to get on board with the community aspect of this main family, the people that we uh, love and care about and all this kind of stuff when they still have 
servants effectively in their house and African-American servants at that, you know, and it's just, it feels like it is an arm's reach kind of thing where for me, I really enjoy this family and I love them and I can see Capra's love and enthusiasm for them and wanting to establish this community and the joy and the happiness that comes with all of that. But then on the same hand, I just kind of wish that he had pushed it a little bit further and went, these people are part of the family in a way, like having just some of the other family help out with cooking or, you know, uh, playing the, you know, plating the table and stuff like that. But one of the early interactions that we see with Donald is that he gets thrown a book by one of the other characters and he's like, oh, book, this sounds really interesting. Opens it up and, you know, a spring snake pops out and scares the shit out of him. And it's like, that's not funny. Uh, you know, there's there's genuine terror in his face there and it's not funny. So what? how do you read this particular film in that regard? Okay. Uh, so one, you're going to have uh, a really bad time when we get to Gone with the Wind. I can't wait. Oh, gosh. Because uh, <laughs> uh, if you think this is problematic, oh, boy. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, and frankly, like, yes, there, have been, there would be ways to include these characters in a more pleasant way, in a way that didn't, that would actually fit with this family. Because the way they treat these two people doesn't really fit with the picture of this you know, crazy, artistic, left-leaning family, um, which I actually kind of expect from Capra. Like, I mean, you know, again, to go back to It's a Wonderful Life, like, that's a fucking communist fairy tale. Like, you know, it's like the whole the whole community comes together to defeat capitalism. Like, that is the <laughs> end of that movie. That's what happens. Um, and you have a lot of that here. And frankly, you could just remove those characters and, like, nothing would change. So it's like a weird bit of comedy that never really works. And it's, you know, it's kind of the stereotypical, the stereotypical speak uh, that you would expect from a white director and writer in the 1930s with black characters. It's pretty upsetting. Um, I, as I was watching this, because again, I'd never seen this, I'd never even heard of it. Um, and as soon as those characters were introduced, I was like, oh no, I, this is not going to go well. And it didn't. I mean, it, it certainly could have gone a lot worse. Um, it's, it's, very, it's a very minor. Yeah. It, it's certainly not. And it's a very, it's a very minor part of the plot. It's a, they're very minor characters. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like with a director like Capra, given the time that he's in, he's about as progressive and as left leaning as you're going to get, um, from a major director. Um, even though eventually he would go on to like, you know, make films for the war effort, which seems less progressive to me, at least to my mind. Um, but back then it's a little bit different because those world wars are very, kind of had you know support from both sides of the aisle so you can kind of be involved in that process because they were very easy enemies to point out at those periods of time where now it's uh you know it's, it, yeah, more it's, comp it, complicated. it's, it's not clint eastwood making an american sniper you know it's right. not that exactly. level of yeah great great comparison yeah absolutely so like is that stuff offensive here yes is it wildly offensive for the 1930s no is it something that you can ignore uh for me yes but i have the privilege of being you know a white guy in the united states which is maybe the most privileged position 
that's ever existed. Um, so maybe I'm not the the person to answer the question of whether it's offensive or not. I'm sure if you had a guest, uh, a black guest on this show, they might be, you know, more upset by this and they would have every right to be. Uh, but I think I would be more upset if it was a more of a major part of the plot and it kept kind of recurring. But it was just like little bits here and there. I kind of I kind of put it in the same in the same vein as if you're watching movies in the 80s with like the gay best friend. Like, it's like, is it obnoxious? Yes. Is it stereotypical? Yes. Am I going to, like, write a think piece about it? No, because it's fucking not worth it. Like, it's not worth my energy. And that's kind of where I put this. But, like, you know, stuff like Cimarron, like, okay, there's a lot going on here, and it needs to be (laughs) talked about. Uh, But in this case, it just, it's, I would find it more more than offensive. It's just kind of disappointing. You're like, "Uh, this is unnecessary. I don't need to see this. And the movie's already two hours. You could save some runtime, but just taking these characters out altogether. Yeah. I find this an interesting film because I want to kind of... It's so surface level in a lot of ways, and it is very entertaining. It is very nice and and pat and all this kind of stuff. And and I understand it's based on a play by George S. Kaufman and, and Moss Hart. And I'm curious because they, in the 1980s, I read that they turned this into a TV series that failed dismally. Uh, it had one season and I think oh, only four Could you imagine like 15 episodes of this fucking nonsense? Yeah. Like, <laughs> family. And then we're going to end it with a song and a dance every weekend. Yeah. No, I'm good, actually. I yeah. don't need that in my life. Yeah, pass. Thanks. Um, but uh, there, there are aspects of this film that I'm glad... I got to experience because of cultural curiosities from, from my perspective. Like for example, in the scenes where um, they are in the park, Tony and uh, Alice are in the park in uh, central park and they, they're sitting there and these kids just appear and are like, you know, the kids are like, do you want to learn how to do a dance? And then Tony is like, Oh, that's illegal. And the kid's like, well, you're necking. And I'm like, Whoa, necking! You know, <laughs> my head is spinning here, and I'm like, for starters, dancing is illegal. I'm like, necking is illegal. I'm like, oof, this is this is uh, stuff I didn't know. Is and this then, where Footloose got its ideas? Is that yeah, what's exactly. happening? <laughs> <laughs> just just less, uh, you know, chickens with tractors um, in this particular film. Um, Unfortunately, yes, yes. yeah, <laughs> that's what this film really needed. In fact, that's what most films really need. Every movie, um, chickens yeah. with tractors. <laughs> what what can be harmed by it? Come on, have a exactly. good time. Yeah, but I found that really fascinating, and there are these these little curiosities that just kind of appear and, and pop up in a way that I just find so so interesting as like little tchotchkes and, and you know things to just kind of sit there and go this is really interesting and especially in the, the manner that Tony talks about um, the little engines that are inside grass and obviously he's talking about solar panels and things like that but the awareness of what he's talking about is just not there but the, the joy and the enthusiasm that he has these are the aspects of the film that I hold on to and I feel are quite good. But they also lead me to wonder, you know, I want to ask the question now, which is, does this film matter? Like it's a, I thought it was a really good film, but does it matter anymore? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, so I, cause I, the reason I pause is I'm thinking, would I think this film mattered if it's a, if it's a wonderful life didn't exist? Um, and the answer would probably be yes. 
Um, but because we have It's a Wonderful Life, like, I feel like, this is shitty, but I feel like you could just strike this from the record without losing anything if you still have It's a Wonderful Life. Because it does everything that this movie does, but so much better. Like, I do, it's like, like everything is, like, played up in the right ways, and this is, it, this feels like a practice run. Like, this feels like, okay, I'm going to get it right eventually, and magically it won an award. And then when I think of what it was up against, Andrew, because I watched a bunch of these movies. Yeah, yeah. So. So, you know, The Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, a classic, a classic in the genre, very enjoyable movie. Fantastic. It's um, great to out- see you uh, supporting Australian cinema there as well. Yeah, like. there you go. <laughs> um, so, on accident, because I would never yeah. do that on purpose. Um, <laughs> Alexander's Ragtime Band, a really fun kind of romp, you know, a love story about, you know, this, you know, this musician and this uh, and this singer and how they get separated and come back together. A very enjoyable movie. Um, Grand Illusion, which we're going to talk about in a future episode. Um, Jezebel, also, also a good movie with, you know, star power. Uh, but maybe the best movie, not counting Grand Illusion, but the best movie of this bunch is probably Pygmalion. Uh, like, I loved that movie. Like, I, I, it was one of those I watched that I couldn't believe I hadn't seen. But, of course, we all know the story, especially if you'd seen My Fair Lady. That's that with songs. Uh, so this is the straight-up kind of drama-comedy version of that, you know, not the musical. And I was very taken by Pygmalion. I was like, this is wonderful. Like, two wonderful lead performances, shot really well, paced really well. Like, that is, like, to me, this is a much better movie then you can't take it with you. Like, I'm happy that Frank Capra won, because I like Frank Capra as a director very much. But this does feel like, it feels slight in comparison even to, like, the genre movies in this list. Like, I could definitely see myself watching something uh, like Alexander's Ragtime Band or The Adventures of Robin Hood again. I can almost guarantee you, unless there's payment or a podcast involved, that this movie is never, I'm never going to watch this again. And... I think a lot of it adds up to the because it's not really good and it's not really bad. It's just kind of that in the middle, just a pleasant watch. Um, and I just and I think its negatives are just too much, like all the all the quirkiness that you talked about. You need some of that um, as I'm thinking about it. You need some of that for the ending to work uh, with the two of them playing harmonica together, which is a very sweet moment. Uh, it really works and, you know, ties back to the moment in the drunk tank. But it also ties back to the fun that this weird family has that this rich man doesn't really understand. And for him to go with his full arc and figure that out, like that's a nice moment and that really works. So like, no, I don't think this movie matters because we get a better version of this at a different point in time. And there's nothing about this that I can really hold on to that. I'm like, Oh God, what would, what would the world of cinema be like if I didn't have this weird dancing granddaughter? Like I just, you know, it's fine. It's fine. If we strike this from the record and move on, not a bad movie, but also it doesn't matter. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely there. And I'm noticing as well, curiously uh, with Pygmalion, I didn't realize it's edited by uh, one David Lean, uh, which is oh, no fascinating. Wonder it's great. Yeah. <laughs> right. The man who's made, like, two, maybe, to me, two of the best, like, 50 movies of all time. You know, you got Lawrence of Arabia, you've got Brief Encounter, you know, Dr. Zhivago. Like, this is a great, great director. So there you go. Maybe that's why I liked it so much. Yeah. And if only, like, um, you know, if Pygmalion had won, maybe we would have uh, been able to avoid having um, My Fair Lady win in... Yeah, that's true. Decades to come. The other thing... 
The other thing I want to bring up that I noticed, and this is just uh, me being like a piggish, red-blooded American male, is that I was watching Jezebel, um, which which feels like uh, feels like it, this movie to It's a Wonderful Life is Jezebel to uh, Gone with the Wind. Like it's kind of the real cheap version of Gone with the Wind. Uh, but I had only seen Betty Davis in movies later in her career. Like, oh my, that is a good-looking woman. Like, goodness. Like, I was not prepared for that. Like, I know it's the whole, like, Betty Davis eyes, like, that's a thing. But, like, she showed up in that movie. I was like, oh, that's what you look like in your prime? Okay. Okay. I get it. I see now. So Jezebel is worth it uh, just for the views is what I'm saying. Yeah. Totally worth a watch. And in regard to that as well, I, I've watched half of it, and it's really quite impressive as, as far as I've seen. Um, so I'm looking forward to finishing it off. Um but uh, one of the things as a, a cultural curiosity for people who are interested, um, again, an Australian, Ori Kelly did the costumes for Jezebel. And in the documentary, Women, He's Undressed, there is a moment that talks about mm-hmm. the red dress that is in that particular film. And of course, the film is in black and white, so you don't right. get to see the I was see like, what red, red dress? dress? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it is a major moment and they talk about how they managed to do that and a lot of uh, a lot of um, Betty Davis's uh, success, and to an extent as well, um, Marilyn Monroe's success on the screen, looking good on screen, comes down to the costume design that helped these rather buxom women look well, the best that they can. I'm glad. I'm glad Australians have finally done something worthy. I, I'm yeah. glad. Finally, finally, something that I can appreciate, <laughs> which is making women look beautiful on screen. Good yeah. job, Aussies. I'm proud yeah. of you. And, and additionally, uh, for, for people who like a little bit of salacious uh, film history as well, Women He's Undressed uncovers a fairly major uh, movie star as being a um, uh, closet homosexual. And that Ooh. is uh, now tantalizing. Ooh, I've got to watch this. That, it's really good. Okay. And it's a Gillian Armstrong film. Well yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but again, this kind of highlights how quick and easy it is to get off track with You Can't Take It With You. It is a lovely film. It's a charming film. I is enjoyed that what my we're time talking with about? it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about Betty Davis some more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if, you, if, if you're coming to this film for the first time, you're going to have a nice time. You know, it is a nice kind of film. It's very charming and... Uh, I enjoyed my experience with it, but as with a lot of these best picture winners, I mean, look, I'm I'm looking back and I can only think of maybe three that I intend to watch again, you know. And given we're at the eleventh best picture winner, it's pretty sad that that's the case. Uh, it, it's pretty sad that we are, you know, while we can sit here and go, yes, this film matters, and you know, all this kind of stuff, um, you know. There is. I, I'm yet to find a film like Wings or like All Quiet on the Western Front or even Grand Hotel where I can sit here and go, you must watch this and you must watch it again. Uh, and I feel, to me, that's what a Best Picture winner should be. It should be that kind of, oh my gosh, this is going to, you know, this is going to be the thing that is not going to get out of your mind for weeks on end. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah, you know what I find interesting about going through this? I think in my head, because, like, we are... You know, we've gone through a bunch of Oscar winners that I had never seen just because, you know, 1930s, believe it or not, are not the decade I've watched most movies in. So like, okay, there's going to be a lot of blind spots here. And I think I had it in my head that like this whole, you know, the Oscars are rigged. 
you know, they're making bad choices. Uh, it's only because they like certain directors or whatever. I thought that was like a relatively modern thing, but I feel like I've seen oh, no. it like from the, from the <laughs> very beginning, like from the beginning where it's like, I mean, wasn't this the one that like everyone thought Betty Davis should have won the year before. So there was, a, so this is like your first makeup Oscar. Like this is the like, well, this, you know, maybe this movie isn't the greatest, but we're, uh, yeah, we're going to give it to you. Yeah, sure, Joaquin Phoenix, we'll give it to you for Joker, even though you should have won, like, four of these at this point. So you're already seeing that. And even, like, um, even like you know, the best director here, even Frank Capra, I think there was, you know, some story when he, like, first won. They're like, oh, Frank, you finally got yours. Like, it was, like, a big moment for him. And it becomes, like, you know, it's impossible to have you know, an award ceremony of a subjective thing that's going to be, oh, objectively, this is the right choice. But it does already feel like we're making specific choices, not because a movie was great, but because we feel like we owe these these individuals something. So it's interesting to me that, like, we're still complaining about this, and this has been going on for 90 years. Like, <laughs> we've been doing this from the very, very, very beginning. So that's very interesting to me that this is not a new thing. This is just an Oscars thing. It makes it even, it makes a, a winner like it happened one night feel like even more of an anomaly because that is such yeah. a, a joyous, happy film and entertaining film that is, its pure intention is to make you laugh and smile and, you know, feel pretty good inside. And, and yet, while that's also the intention of a film like You Can't Take It With You, it's also done with like this, um, I don't know, this might be a, a fairly... Um, you know, specific thing, but it's also done with a tablespoon of cod liver oil in a way. I don't know if uh, people over in America ever had that, but as a kid, you know, no, it was but, like, but we, we've seen, you know, we understand, you know, yeah. we don't <laughs> yeah. ever say that, but I get the gist. Yeah. Like, you know, you, here's something that's sweet, but you got to have this too. And it's that social, uh, you know, commentary and stuff like that. And it's like, it, it makes them, and by them, I mean the voters feel like they're having some kind of say in what is going on in society. And, you know, I, I, I imagine that at this particular time, they were probably looking at, you know, the, the, the remnants of the Great Depression and things like that and going, yeah, this says something meaningful about it. Uh, but it's just nice, but not great. Um, one thing yeah. I will say in this uh, Oscar ceremony this year, you know, what movie won the most awards? Was it um, The Thief of Baghdad, or was that the next year? No. No, uh, for this year in particular, the one that made, that got the most awards in 19, what are we, 1937, 1938, was hmm. The Adventures of Robin Hood. That was All the right. one that won the most awards. So yeah. they got that right. And of course, it was like, you know, best score, best art direction, like not the, the top of the line awards. But still, I like that that movie got, got awarded more than any other. Because that is, I mean, you know... Robin Hood is a movie that's been made a thousand times over and over again. But if you watch that movie, you're like, oh, yeah, they're all not just taking from the Robin Hood legend. They're taking from this version of mm. Robin Hood. Like, this is it right here. Yeah. And also, it's the year of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs as well, which yep. is, you know, once again, it's kind of big like... moment. It's a big moment. But again, as we look at the films that, that were released in these particular years, and it's like, sometimes you just think, I don't know how this happened i don't know like how did they look at the films that were released in this particular year and go this is what we're going to go with um 
and, yeah. and again, it, it just reaffirms my belief as well. And I'm sure it's the same as many listeners out there that ah, if only they kind of had a two year gap in between the actual films themselves and the winners um, being announced would be good um, because some perspective and, and realization that maybe, you know, this isn't the best film of that year would have been mm. nice, but uh, that would be nice. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's You Can't Take It With You. Um, just like some of the other films that we've already discussed, um, we will likely forget about this as soon as we start recording the next episode. Um, I've already <laughs> forgotten. What was this about yeah. again? I don't, Who knows? I got Who knows? <laughs> uh, the life, uh, yeah, yeah, the life of a meal, you can't take it with you. They're all, they're all the same. They all yeah. blend together. It's fine. Yeah, it's a cavalcade of nonsense, really. Oh, boo. <laughs> Tell us where you can find you on the internet, Dave. Yes, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter um, at Darn That Dave, and you will find all of my many, and I really mean many, uh, podcasts on that account. You will see them all, whether you want uh, to talk about, you know, movies that are on AFI best of lists, or you want to talk about terrible threequels, as in the third movie in a sequence, or you want to talk about gay movies. Uh, I have Queer and Now. You can you can check that out. Uh, that's Queer and Now Pod, but just follow me at Darn That Dave, and you can find all of that in time for our next episode on The Grand Illusion, right? That's what we're doing next? That's, yeah. A good film for once. Um, yeah, and you can find us, Awards Don't Pod on Twitter, and Awards Don't Matter on Facebook, and all that kind of stuff. If you leave us a rating or review would be lovely uh and you can also get in contact with uh us i guess yeah i do we do have an email address but it's probably easier just to get in contact with us at contact at the curb.com.au if you have any questions or suggestions or whatever uh thank you again for listening people we will see you on the next episode why don't you write a play about ismania ismania yeah sure you know communism fascism Voodooism. Everybody's got an ism these days. <laughs> I thought it was an itch or something. Well, it's just as catching. When things go a little bad nowadays, you go out and get yourself an ism and you're in business. I've got it. It might help Cynthia to have an ism in the monastery. <laughs> Lincoln said, with malice toward none, with charity though. Nowadays, they say, think the way I do, or I'll bomb the daylights out of you.